0: This morning's Bible passage is coming from Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you.
1: Uh, today we're going to look really at verse 1 to 10. Next week we're really going to zone in on verse 11 to 15. Let's pray as we look at verse 1 to 10 together now. Heavenly Father, with Bibles open in front of us and our lives open to you and the work of your Spirit, please be at work in our Lives and hearts and minds now to shape us into the image of your Son Jesus. Amen. One of my favourite TV programs is this, The Gruen Transfer. It's a program that looks at the world of advertising. And I reckon the best bit of this little program is the part where they get professional advertising companies to come in and they give them a product or they give them an idea that's really unpopular or an idea that's really unattractive in our culture and they see if they can sell it. So they ask these professional advertising companies to come up with an ad that sells and promotes this really unpopular thing. They have to come up with an ad that makes us like something that we wouldn't ordinarily like. Now here's a list of things that these companies have had to come up with ads for. To have kids in Australia you need to apply for a parent's license from the government. Australia should aim for silver medals at the Olympics rather than aiming for gold. It's okay for little children to get plastic surgery if they want to look better in the schoolyard. Australia and New Zealand should join to one nation. Uh, Tasmania should hope should host the next Olympics. Now all of those ideas they're they're opposite to what our culture likes. Now some of those ideas we just don't like. Others of them are bordering on offensive. But the advertising companies then have to make up an ad that will actually convince us to like this thing. Some of the ads, they just go to try and be funny, but some of the ads are actually very effective in making you rethink your objection to something and making you suddenly think, oh, maybe that is a really good thing. They're the ads that I love watching. I love watching how the best advertising minds in the country can turn something that is culturally unattractive into something that you start thinking, wow, actually that's a good idea, I kind of like that. And every time I see an advertising company on this program do that successfully, there's this little idea that goes off in my head. I can't help but think, what would it be, what would it look like if they came up with an ad to make Christianity look attractive in our culture? If their task was to come onto the Gruen Transfer and to make an ad that made the gospel attractive to people in Australia, what would they actually come up with? Could they do it? Well a better question might be for me to ask, what would God come up with? Christianity is his thing after all. What is God's plan for making it attractive to the people in the world? Well, we actually see part of God's plan to do that in today's passage. In Titus chapter 2 we see how God's Apostle, the Apostle Paul, we see how he thinks that Christianity is going to be attractive to the people on the island of Crete. Now if you were here last week we learnt that Crete was a very difficult place to be a Christian because last week we saw that the national stereotype for people in Crete were liars and lazy gluttons, that's their national stereotype. And so the gospel is going to be very unattractive. It's going to be very countercultural in a place like Crete. So how does Paul think that the Christians in the church in Crete are going to be able to advertise and make Christianity attractive to their culture? You might have already picked up that the answer is that Paul thinks if they just live godly lives, people in some way will be attracted to the gospel. Godly behaviour is going to be the thing attracts people in Crete to the gospel. Did you notice three times in that passage, Paul says that the way that Christians in Crete are going to live will affect how their society views them? So firstly, in verse 5, to the women, uh, Paul encourages them to live godly lives so that no one would malign the word of God. Or in verse 8, he says to Titus to live in a certain way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. In verse 10, you might have noticed that he tells slaves who have become Christians that even they can live in a way so that every way, in, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. See, Paul's hope for the church in Crete is that they will live such godly lives that the gospel in some way will actually become attractive to people around them. Here's the big point of chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Godly lies of the Christians in Crete will actually lead to some people being attracted to the gospel. That's the big idea in these first 10 verses. And so Paul gets Titus to teach the different groups in the church how to live a godly life for their particular position in life. So firstly, you would have noticed that Titus is to teach the older men to live in a way that makes the gospel look attractive. Pick it up with me from verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So firstly, Titus is to teach the older men to be temperate. Temperate is a word that just means like in moderation or showing restraint. It's a word that was often connected to uh, drinking alcohol. Drunkenness seems to be a really big part of the culture in Crete. You would have noticed last week that not being drunk was a requirement for an elder. You would have noticed that the older women in this passage are not to be addicted to much wine. Uh, drunkenness was obviously a real thing in their culture. Uh, next, the older men are to be taught to be worthy of Respect. See, age doesn't automatically equal being worthy of respect of younger people. When I was a young guy, somewhere around the age of 20, I went to a Christian wedding of a close friend and the father of the bride gets up to speak. He's an older man, he's a leader at our church and his entire wedding speech consisted of him poking fun at marriage, saying silly things for cheap love, things like this. Uh, marriage involves three rings, engagement ring, marriage ring, suffering, just full of jokes like that, poking fun at marriage, not a single soundbite about the beauty of marriage, not a single soundbite about how marriage points to Jesus and the church. I have to say, after that, I found it very hard to respect him as a leader in our church. See, Titus is to teach the older men to behave in a way that is actually worthy of, of respect Uh, he's also to teach the older men to be self-controlled sound in faith and love and endurance those things are the opposite of the culture in Crete Uh, Crete totally lacked self-control one of Crete's own poets described his own culture as this Cretans are always liars evil brutes and lazy gluttons And so if the older men in the church in Crete are to live out lives that are temperate, that are self-controlled, they're going to really stand out in their culture in an attractive way. Uh, From there, Titus goes on to then uh, teach the older women how to behave in a way that will make the gospel look attractive uh, in their lives as well. Look at the next verse, verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Uh, So, just like there were certain temptations uh, for the older men in Crete, there's certain temptations that are particular to the older women in Crete. And the first thing that Paul singles out for them was slandering, gossiping, saying negative things about others behind their back. But instead of slandering and gossiping, the older women in the church in Crete are supposed to use their language for teaching what is good specifically for teaching the younger women how to live in a way that promotes the gospel. Look at the next verse. Then they, that's the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, we'll unpack those things in a moment, but I just want to, show you, firstly, notice the role for older women to teach the younger women in the church of Crete to live a life that makes the gospel look attractive. Older women, you have an enormous important role in God's plan for his church. And that's important for you to hear because our society considers getting older a really bad thing. Our society highly values youth and sort of sidelines the elderly. That's why we have things like Botox, that's why we have hair dye, that's why we have midlife crises at 40, but the Bible thinks that actually getting old is actually genuinely a really good thing, because with age should come wisdom and character and integrity. One of my favourite proverbs uh, says this, grey hair is a crown of splendour, it is gained in a righteous life. I haven't quite got a crown of splendour. I think I can sense that it's on its way. I think there's one or two bits that are starting to look splendorous. But uh, grey hair is a sign of age. And the Bible thinks that age means you have had many years to grow in maturity and character and integrity. We have a number of people in our own congregation here who have crowns of splendour. One of our oldest members, Charles, he's 94 years old. Now, he's currently in England, uh, but when he's in Perth, you will see him arrive here on that little motorized scooter which he drives in and, and parks down here. And I'm waiting for the day when he comes into the foyer and I say, Hey, Charles, how are you? And he says to me, How am I? I'm 94. I'm having trouble walking. I'm having trouble hearing the sermon. How am I? Here's how I am I'm in my prime. I'm in the prime of my godliness. 94 years is a long time for God to be working on someone's character. I'm in the prime of my patience. God has been spending the last 40 years working on that aspect of my character. I'm in the prime of my Bible knowledge and wisdom. I've been reading the Bible for 80 years. I've never known so much about the Word of God. How am I, Mike? I'm in my prime. And that makes someone like Charles a very good person to sit next to and encourage and teach younger Christians. I was very lucky. When I became a Christian at the age of 21, there were a few people at my church with crowns of splendor attained in righteousness that did a very good job of discipling and teaching me. Now, one little caveat, one little note to consider... Age and grey hair doesn't always equal Christian maturity. It's supposed to, but you can grow old and hard and foolish. That's why Paul finds it necessary to actually teach the older men and the older women in Crete to actually live in a way that shines the gospel because just because somebody has grey hair and a lot of years, it doesn't mean that they are mature as a Christian. Let me put this as vividly as I can for you using some pictures. There is a difference between The wisdom of Gandalf when you compare it to Saruman. Both have grey hair. Only one of them is a good choice for shaping the lives of young hobbits. I mean, Christians. I got stuck in the metaphor. (laughs) You get my point. I've actually noticed a repeating cycle in my life over the last 15 years. When I was 25, I looked back at the twenty year old version of me and I said, Oh man, can't believe I used to think that. Can't believe I used to act like that. I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. Then I got to thirty and I looked back at twenty five year old Mike and I said, Oh man, I'm so glad I don't think like that anymore. I'm so glad I don't act like that. I'm so glad I finally matured at thirty. Then I got to thirty five and I looked back at thirty year old me and I thought, man, I'm so glad I don't believe that anymore, I'm so glad I don't act like that anymore. When I get to 40, I'll look back at 30. You know, you can see the pattern. I always think I've finally matured. I always think, oh, I'm finally, I'm no longer a fool. Have you ever done that thing where you kind of look back at you and you say to yourself, oh gosh, if, if only I could go back a couple of years and just say this to the younger, more immature version of me. If I could just go back and say this to my younger self. Well, guess what? That older, wiser version of you that exists in the future, it doesn't need to go back in time to teach the younger version of you, to give you good advice. Why? Because you have older, wiser, more mature Christians in your church to do that. See, what's going to be easier for you? The older more mature version of you in the future that's got everything worked out. What's going to be easier? That person inventing a time machine and risking disruption to the space-time continuum to come back to the present to teach the younger you or sitting at lunch with an older wiser Christian today. One that has a crown of splendor attained in righteous living. You see, that's Paul's vision for the older women in the church in Crete. They're supposed to be teaching the younger women how to lead a life that attracts others to the gospel. Older, more mature folks, you are pivotal in God's plan for maturing his church so that they might live godly lives. So with that in mind, why don't we now go back to the passage and look at the things that older women should be teaching the younger women in Crete. Pick it up from verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Firstly, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and kids. You might be thinking, really? Like, what kind of person needs to be taught to love their kids and love their husband? The answer is, anybody who has kids and anybody who has a husband. Because, believe me, there will be times, as much as you love them, there will be times we actually don't act consistently lovingly, and if you don't believe me, sit with a parent at lunchtime today and just ask them, hey, have you consistently acted in love to your children? Even, I know you love them all the time, have you consistently acted lovingly? No parent will say yes to that, uh, and if they do, they are probably from Crete, they're a liar. Parents always love their kids, but gosh, it's so hard. And when kids are young and you're up all night and you haven't slept in four months, it is very difficult to consistently act lovingly. Now, when our first child was born, we had months and months of sleepless nights. It was really draining. And then finally, he slept through. Uh, however, I didn't realise that he didn't actually sleep through. Vicky was up all night holding him, keeping him from crying, and so... my ignorance. I got up in the morning and I was like, oh, how good was that? He finally slept through. I feel great. Why do you look so tired? (laughs) Now, to her credit, Vicky worked very hard that morning at loving her husband. But my point is, it's actually not always easy. It's not always easy to consistently love kids and husbands. And older mums, uh, you have a very valuable role in teaching younger mums how to do that how they might be able to love their kids and their husbands so that the word of God might not be maligned. That's what Paul is saying. I look at the last thing in verse 5. We don't have time to look at every single thing. We're going to pick a few things out. Verse 5, older women should teach younger women to be subject to their husbands so that the word of God might not be maligned. What marketing rookie would ever put being subject to husbands on the list of things that you think is going to make the gospel look attractive? That's not attractive. Our culture finds that very offensive. However, I want to say that my experience is, while our culture finds the idea offensive my experience is that they often find the lived-out reality attractive because the reality of the Bible's picture of wives submitting to husbands is not a picture of wives submitting to the self-centred will of someone, but submitting to their husband's self-sacrifice for them. Now, Ephesians 5, which we don't have time to look at this morning, goes into a lot more detail about what this looks like Want to read it later? You'll see that husbands are supposed to love their wives in self sacrificial ways, and the wife is supposed to submit to that self sacrificial serving. So, I want to give you an example of what this actually looks like. Get in your time machine and come back with me five minutes. I'm going to retell that story about being up all night to illustrate something. Replay the story and imagine it goes like this. I remember when we had our first kid, we were up all night for months, we were absolutely exhausted, all we wanted to do was just get a good night's sleep and then one night, I don't hear him crying, but I realise it's because Vicky is up all night with him, so I walk down the corridor to the baby's room and there she is holding him so that he won't cry, so that uh, I can sleep and I say to her, come on, give him to me, you go and get some rest, and she says no, no, it's okay, I will stay with him, Uh, you sleep and I say, no, no, you need to sleep, give him to me, you go to bed. And she says, no, you've got to go to work in the morning, I will stay here, you sleep. And then I say, Vicky, I'm your husband, I'm saying I will stay up all night so that you can get some sleep. And she says, okay, and she goes to sleep, and I stay up all night. The husband is supposed to love his wife in self-sacrificial ways. Why does it actually cost him? And the wife is supposed to submit to that and to be served in that way. And that's supposed to be a picture of how Jesus self-sacrificially serves his bride, the church, by laying his life down for her. It's supposed to show the world that it's actually a good and safe thing to submit to the rule of Jesus. See, in the example, people are supposed to see me up all night so that Vicky can sleep and see that as just the, the palest, just the faintest, just the tiniest picture of Jesus' self-sacrifice for his bride, the church. See, a marriage like that is supposed to portray the gospel in a way that actually makes the gospel attractive. Next, Titus is to teach the young men in verse 6. Uh, young men only one thing to do I, I'd like to say we get off easy but um, probably you guys who are young get off easy look at verse 6 just one thing similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled just one thing be self-controlled sounds kind of easy until you realise that that must mean self-control in sexual purity self-controlled in lust self-controlled in gluttony self-controlled in speech self-controlled in temper self-controlled in work ethic? If the young men in Crete were to actually live self-controlled lives in Crete, a place known for laziness and gluttony, oh boy, it's really going to stand out. Titus is then also to teach the slaves to live in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Now, slavery was an unfortunate part of Greek uh, culture. We don't have time today to go into all the details of a Christian approach to slavery and everything that it says. We've just got time to look at this tiny little verse, which does show that even for the Christian, in the lowest place in the social order, even that Christian can live in a way that adorns and makes attractive the gospel. Verse 9 teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted, look at this, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now there's no exact cultural parallel for us and slavery, thankfully. The closest thing in our culture would be the employee boss relationship it 's clearly it 's not the same that 's the closest our culture has to it, and the behavior of Christians in the workplace they can either tarnish the reputation of the gospel or they can promote it and make it look good for decades. I worked in a company where thankfully there was a number of Christians in an office of two hundred people, uh, and our behavior would either tarnish the gospel and make it look unattractive or would actually polish it in the sense that it looked good to people. Uh, there was one Christian, however, in the office who the managers always seemed to punish. They would always give her, like, the worst clients, the most difficult ones, the ones who were uh, aggressive, uh, unrealistic, the one that everyone in the office used to hate working for. And she eventually confronted uh, the managers and said, how come you always give me those ones? And they said, we give them to you because you're the most patient person that we have. You are the only one that we can give that client to and we can trust that this is not going to blow up. See, she would deal with gospel patience and kindness to even the most difficult client that she was handed to such an extent that she became known for it throughout the company. Her life adorned the gospel. She had many opportunities to explain why she was so patient. She would say, I'm patient with them because God has been incredibly patient with me. Godly lives attract people to the gospel. Godly lives don't convert people, the gospel does that, but godly lives attract people to the gospel. You may not be a gifted evangelist, you may not be able to explain the gospel in articulate and compelling ways, you may not be able to answer the hard questions that people throw at you, but you can live in a way that makes the gospel attractive. And instead of me giving you an illustration of what that looks like, we're going to pause for a moment and I'm going to ask a couple from our congregation up here to talk about that, a couple who I think actually do a pretty good job of modelling this for us. I'm going to ask Ollie and Phil uh, to come up. It's okay, they did know. Uh, I'm just going to ask both of you just a couple of questions. Phil, maybe I could start with you. Uh, can you tell me the ways that you see uh, Ollie work hard at that first blue circle, at living a godly life what does it actually look like for him?
2: Um, so in the context of work, probably, like he does it at home as well, but um, context of work, he prays before he goes to work and we pray together about his work so he works in um, like they build shopping centres so as you can imagine, it's quite task focused, it's Outcome-based. It's um, there's not a lot of people that you can respect in in the industry. So he prepares himself for sort of every meeting or just his normal day, um, and he's not looking for evangelists. You know, he's not going to go into an asset meeting hoping to evangelize everyone and um, in the industry because um, that means he doesn't get his job done. But, um, so he knows he. Wants to do his job and get those outcomes, but to do it in a way that isn't uh, is a bit different to how everyone else does it. Um, so for him, there's a lot of prayer, and I think when you drive to work, you don't listen to Hamish and Andy, you, or necessarily, or he um, maybe he's like thinking of a Bible verse or something, and it just means that he's. In those meetings, where there's often a lot of aggression or um, bullying or whatever, he's not aggravating the situation. He's calm. He's honest. He's um, transparent, um, and he views. Although he needs to get his job done, and we pray that he does an excellent. Like he's a good worker. Um, he focuses on the relationship side of work, which is very unusual in the industry. Like it's about ticking boxes and getting deals across the line and he's about um, yeah, building relationships. So it means that you know, he's got ongoing relationships with people he did a deal with 10 years ago. That's odd. That's not normal. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's what the first blue circle, living a godly life, looks like. What, what about the second one? There's some stories. How have you seen it actually attract people to the gospel?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, he's obviously not, as I said, evangelising in asset meetings, but he's in small meetings where he's dealing with usually um, very secular people, um, money-focused people, deal-focused people. He's just different. He's um, in situations that could escalate, and there's obviously a lot of conflict. In those conflicts, he's not um, desperate to win, um, he's not always desperate to make himself look good um, and I think just that approach and being upfront about deals, up front about why he's approaching something in a different way, it does make him look quite different so um, I think this week was a, or last week was a good example where um, he can go for a long time without getting any sort of anywhere with people and then um, this week he's uh, had a client he's been dealing with who's quite difficult and by the end of the um, meeting he, they'd talked about marriage, um, Ollie's approach to marriage and kids and had a big long sort of conversation about that and why Ollie is different, approached it differently. And then the other one which was amazing was um, he... A, 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 friend he works with in Adelaide and their relationship is very much on the phone or via email um, was sent over for some work and by the end of their three days together Ollie was, you know, in a perfectly normal setting, able to give him Christianity explained and because it felt completely normal and, um, and this man had come to him for advice about a relationship and Ollie said well obviously I'm going to give you my Christian viewpoint and the guy goes yes I know that's that's actually what I want mm-hmm. um, and so you know when you pray for opportunities um, they do come so you've just got to be prepared for them mm-hmm. so it's no point praying for an opportunity and then not being ready for it the fact that Ollie had Christianity explained in his briefcase I don't know how calculated that was but it was there <laughs> um, but yeah to pray for the opportunities but also be prepared for them when they actually come up.
1: Uh, Ollie, same question. What does the living a godly life or endeavouring to live a godly life look like for Phil?
3: Um, so watching Phil uh, means that I see her mostly interacting with uh, families at school, so our kids' schools, primary school, and um, her friends that she goes to CrossFit with. Um, what, it, what it doesn't look like for uh, for a start, is that she's she's not the one that's sort of trying to be well liked or popular, and um, and sometimes that seems to work against her. Uh, first impressions sometimes aren't the best, uh, but what it means is she she's being intentionally loyal and faithful towards um, to, towards people. She um, she always actively looks for uh, the person who's on the margin, or who's new and doesn't seem to know anyone, she's got an, an eye for spotting someone who's having a crisis or who's looking a bit lost. Um, she will look for the battler, uh, for the single mum who's just turned up and the kids are screaming. Those are the people that she will kind of target and focus on. Uh, and she just offers them basic kindness. She doesn't uh, try and fix their problems, or um, she 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 just is there to be to listen. And can I do anything to help? Um, and she's not the one who stands back and waits to see if anyone else will do it. She she's in there, kind of first up. Um,
1: what about the second circle? How have you seen that playing out in people's attraction to the
3: gospel? Um, so what it, what it means is that. Uh, the school has now cottoned on to uh, that's her style and so if they've got a, a problem family or a, a situation a relationship breakdown uh, she's someone they will call and say uh, could could she help could she meet this person could she um, be part of a, a meeting to sort something out uh, it means that the owner of the CrossFit gym uh, pops around for some advice about someone in the gym who's causing issues and Will uh, you know? Will listen to her and get her take on things. Um, it means that there's constantly people in the house having cups of tea, or asleep on the couch, or uh, staying for dinner, or sleeping in the back room. Um, so I I come home just fully prepared that oh, there'll be someone I don't know um, in in the house. Uh, it means as well that. I think people who need kindness um, need it at difficult times, and so you can't, at, at a late hour, suddenly decide that it's not convenient that someone's knocking on your door needing uh, food or needing just somewhere to be because they can't be at home for whatever reason. And it means also that you know trying to run a run a house and run a family suddenly a week can be thrown into chaos because you're driving someone who either can't drive or they don't want to drive and you're taking them to appointments or to meetings or to counselling whatever it might be and so suddenly your whole week is kind of squished and and messed up Um, and it means that in a sense she's always the middle person picking the middle between people who are conflicting whether it's between a husband and a wife or it's between a school and a family, or it's between two CrossFit people, um, it just means that she's kind of in the middle, and that kind of means that she has to put up with well, why are you taking their side. And you know, she gets pulled between the two parties because they see her as well, you're favoring their point of view, whereas she's just being impartial uh, to both sides to try uh, and help them. Um, and so, I'm the guy who crosses the street to avoid a homeless person uh, but ironically I get home and she's invited to dinner and so they're they're, there. Yep, yep. Thank you. You may not
1: be a gifted evangelist, you may not be particularly good at articulating the gospel but you can live in a way that makes the gospel attractive to people. Godly lies makes the gospel look attractive and that's true, isn't it? I mean how many times have I heard the testimony of somebody who's become a Christian and it starts with something Like this, I met some Christians and they loved me. I met some Christians, the way their life lived impacted me and eventually they shared with me the good news of the gospel. Or put that the other way around, how many times have you heard someone reject Christianity because of the ungodly actions of Christians like us? How many people do you know who've rejected Christianity saying the church is full of hypocrites? I'm not saying it's right to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. I'm just saying that's what happens. Actually, I'm not saying that's what happens. That's what God is saying happens in Titus chapter 2. The way we live as Christians either adorns the gospel and makes it look attractive or it maligns it and tarnishes it. And so Paul encourages Titus to teach the church in Crete to live in a way that makes the gospel look attractive. Now, you might be feeling uncomfortable about something at this point and rightly so. You, You might be thinking... If I just try and live a godly life so that it makes the teaching of the gospel look attractive, then aren't I just a marketing campaign? Aren't I just a religious salesman? I mean, that just doesn't feel right. Like, if if the only reason you strive to live a godly life is that people would be attracted to the gospel, then yeah, you are, in some ways, just a religious salesman. Which is why it's really important to notice this. Verse 1 and 10 is saying that godly lives lead people to the gospel, but that's not the reason for living a godly life. That's the result. The reason for living the godly life is what comes next in verse 11 to 15. What is it? What's the reason for living a godly life? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's talking about the appearing of Jesus and the salvation that he brought. Jesus came to save ungodly people like me and you. He saved us from God's wrath by taking God's wrath instead of us. Despite the fact that we were God's enemies, the death that we should have died for our ungodly lives was paid for, was transferred to Christ. We didn't earn that forgiveness. We don't deserve that forgiveness. And grace is the word that the Bible uses to describe that unearned, Forgiveness. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And look at the results of this grace in verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. It's God's grace. It's his undeserved forgiveness that teaches us to live godly lives. God has been so over the top, lavishly, abundantly gracious to us. He forgave us through the death of Jesus. And when we see how amazingly gracious God has been, we cannot help but want to live in a way that pleases Him. Our motivation for living a godly life is God's grace. Those advertising professionals at the Gruen Transfer, they will actually never come up with an advertising campaign that makes Christianity attractive and makes us motivated to live a godly life. The marketing geniuses of the Gruen Transfer will never motivate us to live a godly life but the graciousness of the guilt transfer will the guilt transfer that happened at the cross three advertising gurus standing around a giant red barcode will never come up with a plan that will motivate you to live a godly life but christians standing around thinking about the red flowing blood of christ for their sin that will motivate us See, it's looking at the guilt transfer. It's looking at our guilt laid upon Jesus at the cross. It's looking at God's grace that will actually motivate us to live godly lives. There's a heap more to say about this, and that's what we're doing next week as we focus in on verse 11 to 15. We're going to look at that in depth next Sunday. How is it that grace motivates us? But for today, it's enough to know this. God's grace leads us to godly lives, and godly lives attracts others to the gospel. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Are you living godly lives that makes the gospel look attractive? Are you living lives that adorn the gospel in your homes, in your workplace, at your university? Are there areas in your life that you know actually need to change about this? Well, we're going to pray. I'd love you to think about that during the week. I'd love you to come back next week to look at how grace motivates us to live godly lives. Let's pray.